do is just make a quick quick introduction here and then I'm gonna have Luke come up and share what he has to share so past couple weeks we've been going over what the gospel actually is and how you communicate it to a person the focus has been evangelistic in the sense that we want you guys to be able to share your faith with others and last time I should say two weeks ago, we went over just kind of an overview. Last week, it was a little bit more specified in terms of what it means to actually be born again, what it actually means to believe, and then the fruits that result from that in terms of actually obeying and following Christ. And today, we're going to get into more specifically what following Jesus actually means and why it's important to recognize that. And what Luke is going to share is a great example of why it's so dangerous to just believe in Jesus, but not actually follow him. Um, so, Luke, you can come up here. Um, before he does that, I just have a quick announcement for the kids, which is that uh, if you guys have paper and coloring implements, which it looks like you, you do, uh, to, for yourself, draw what it means to you to follow Jesus. So, imagine following Jesus, whatever that looks like to you, draw that. Any questions about that? Okay. If you can, have, if you want to have your parents explain, then uh, then you guys can do that for them. Otherwise, that's the project that I have for you. All right, you ready, Luke? I'm ready. All right. Well, hi guys. My name's Luke. Um, like David said, hi. He asked me to share um, my story, and so I guess I'll just kind of start from the beginning, just to kind of help you guys understand exactly. But I, I was. I grew up in the church, you know, I knew of Jesus my whole life. <clears throat> I believed in him. I confessed him as my Lord. I was on number two on this my whole life. There was no doubt in my mind that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Um, I volunteered at church all throughout high school. Um, and like I said, I believed in him, but there was no fruit. There was no repentance. There was no following him in my life. Um, and then I went to college and this time I was like, okay, you know, I always went to church with my, my parents and now it's this opportunity to kind of live life and, you know, figure out what I want to do. And this one night we were down in my friend's dorm and they were vaping and drinking. And I usually wasn't into that lifestyle, but they peer pressured me into it. And I was like, ah, sure. What the heck? I'll take a, I'll take a hit. Yeah. Bring that vape over here. So I took a I took a, a hit of the vape. I took a big, huge pull, <clears throat> a mammoth pull. <laughs> and I took such a big pull that I actually couldn't breathe. And the room just like slowly went to darkness. And uh, so I passed out. And then what I remember next was just falling, falling through an eternity of darkness. Like I could just feel, feel myself falling a million miles an hour just in pure darkness. And then all of a sudden I just felt wham, like it just felt like a football player or I just had been smashed into the ground. And I woke up just like you see in the movie, it was like, <gasps> I woke up and there was a lights just like this one in my eyes. I was all, I was all sweaty. I was cold. My body ached. And I was like, what, what just happened? They're like, dude, you've been out for five minutes. Are you good? I'm like, I'm like, ah, uh, I think, I don't know. And they're like, well, I'm like, what, what happened? They're like, well, you just like melted over and hit your head on the ground. And 
I'm like, okay, well, and they're like, we, we, we didn't take your pulse or anything, but we put, we put our hand over your mouth and we felt that you were breathing. So we knew you were good. And then I was like, okay, I was really shooken up. Like I tried to drink some water and I puked it up and I'm like, I'm going to go back to my dorm and sleep. So I slept for like 12 hours. And then the next week we went over to some other friend's house to play cards and they were a, an upperclassman about to graduate with, uh, for a nursing degree. And we told her the story. It's like, I passed out from a vape. They thought it was hilarious. And uh, she's like, wait, wait, wait. You guys didn't take his pulse? And they're like, no, no, he was breathing. He was good. She's like, no, like air can come out of someone's body for 15 minutes when they're dead. So then I kind of tucked that away, that story away. And, but it, it scared me, whatever that was. It really scared me. It, it was like, I was like shooken up after that. I was like, dang, like. I need to, so I stopped swearing after that. I started actually like, okay, I'm going to like read the Bible. I'm going to like pursue the Lord and try to clean my life up a bit. I'm not going to vape anymore. Like I'm not going to do any of that. And so I kind of like stirred me up and scared me a little bit. And I tucked it away because I didn't think much of it. I just thought I passed out. And then it must have been, was it a week ago, two weeks ago, when Allie shared something at house church about a tongue interpretation and how the Lord said that, um, he protected her two times from dying. And then I remembered that story and I was like, man, I'm going to ask the Lord if I died. So I asked him, we called up Alex and did tongue interpretation. I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, did I die? He said, the question is not if you died in college once, but twice. You died once during your traumatic experience. And then when you died to your flesh to believe in the sun. So I was in in eternity of darkness, on my way to hell. And the Lord pulled me out. So the scary thing was, what is still, like I get goosebumps and it just scares me, is I was 100% confident where I was going because I believed in Jesus. No repentance, was not following him, but I was 100%, I was like, I'm safe. I'm good. I believe in Jesus. So I know there's so many people out there that are just in my shoes. Um, but it was, it, it still shakes, it still shakes me up and it's, it's a reality check. So yeah, it's, it's real. And we gotta, we gotta help people and open their eyes to the real gospel. Amen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, we know that this is in the Word, but we've got an example right there of like, hey, you can't just be a believer, right? So, what we're going to get into now is two things. Uh, we've gone over quite a few details that are on this handout, but I'm just going to go over a couple different points just to review a couple things. And then we're going to talk about actually following Jesus, which is what Luke decided to do after this traumatic experience, as God called it, um, where he was cast into outer darkness and was falling. Uh, that what he decided to do when he turned his life around and actually chose to put action to his faith, which is actually when the faith became real, uh, and then chose to follow Jesus, what that actually means. And so we're going to get into that. But first off, the second, uh, well, the first two points just at the very top, the first, first section is decide to repent and turn to God. And then there's the first two bullet points. The first one says, deny yourself, lose your life for Christ. So we're going to look at that reference. So go to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. 
Matthew 16, verse 24. So that says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So we'll stop there for a moment. So there's two, two main points to that first verse in verse 24. People who desire to come after him and then people who follow him. And he says, everyone who desires to come after him needs to deny themselves, take up the cross, and then follow him. So notice he's not addressing people who are already disciples or who are already his followers. He's saying anyone who desires to come after me. So he isn't even saying people who are coming after him yet. He's just saying people who want to. So come after him basically means somebody takes an interest in Christ. Modern example would be you're talking to somebody and they're like, oh yeah, I think I'd like to look into this. I think I want to learn about Jesus. I think I'm willing to hear the gospel. That would be desiring to come after him. So from the very first introduction of Christ to a person, Jesus says you have to lay some groundwork, which is that if you have any desire or any interest in Jesus, you got to remember three things. If this is going to work for you, or if this is going to be a meaningful decision that will actually result in change in your life, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and you must follow him. So why does he attach those three things as necessities to just simply a desire or an interest in coming after him? That's because if you do not have the intention to actually follow him, then coming after him is just like a hobby. It's just an interest and that's all it is. And that's what it'll be your whole life if you have no expectation to follow him. Were you going to make a comment, Kevin? We're going to try to do the microphone it's now. It's like in Mark 1, 16, how, well, before that, how Christ said to the fishermen, you know, follow me. Mm -hmm. Boom. Life yep. over. Come follow life, me. New life. Mm -hmm. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Anyone want to volunteer to be the microphone passer around her person? Do you want to do it? Sure. Just put the switch off whenever someone's done. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So yeah, great comment there. So if Jesus used this method where he basically set the expectation for a person that, Hey, if you're going to take interest in me, you got to know this has got to be about following me. In other words, it's all or nothing. That was how he introduced the gospel to people. So we ought to do the same thing. So that's the first point. Second bullet point, deny yourself righteousness. So this is a really, really common thing to encounter in terms of preaching the gospel to other people. So let's say, for example, you go to a person and you say, hey, taking interest in Jesus is, is really about following him and denying yourself and taking up the cross. And a person will commonly say, oh, well, I think I've done that. And this, I just had an experience of this just a few days ago met somebody on the street, just, I just went for a walk, met somebody, um, got talking to her. We started talking about the Lord and, and I, and I started to introduce this and she said, oh yeah. I mean, she just, she was very confident, just like Luke said he was right. Very confident. She said, yeah, I mean, I've done this. I taught Sunday school or she said, I teach Sunday school. She still does it. And she just listed off all these good works that she's done. And to her, that's what it meant to follow Jesus. 
to do things for him, right? So then I started talking about repentance. And I said, okay, well, it's good that you've done those things. I'm sure God appreciates that. But what about repentance? Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. And immediately she got defensive and was threatened by that verse. All I did was quote the Bible. That's all I did. She got threatened. Now, good rule of thumb is if you preach repentance to somebody and it threatens them, makes them uncomfortable, or they get defensive. That's usually a telltale sign that they're convicted by that and they know they're not right with God. If somebody responds to that, responds to that with humility, like Jesus said, which is identify somebody who has mercy from God, then they're going to acknowledge, yeah, you know, you're right. I should, I should be repenting more and I want to and I want help with that. If somebody responds like that, that's a good sign. They, they have some fruit of repentance in their life and so it's usually easier step in that case. But if somebody gets defensive and they withdraw, that usually means they know they're not right with God and that's why they're threatened by it. So this particular woman responded that way with that feeling threatened and she started to get into this, basically talk about how she felt that that verse wasn't actually true. And so then I got into this conversation with her about self-righteousness. It's really important that you know this because the way that it typically works is that if a person lists off all the good works that they've done, they believe that that is following Jesus because they believe that, that, that those good works are what justify or excuse the sin that they know is in their life. And that's the big mistake. So people will think following Jesus just means do enough good works that I feel better about the evil works so that hopefully God will overlook the evil works because he knows I've done enough good for him, right? So when Jesus told the rich young ruler, for example, this perfect biblical example, this reference is uh, Mark 10 verses 17 through 22. I'm not going to go there right now, but if you guys are taking notes, you can write that down couple different accounts of it, but this one in particular is Mark 10 verses 17 through 22. In this case, this is just like this woman I met, just like people you're going to meet everywhere. This person comes to Jesus and said, Lord, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And because they're still living under the old covenant, Jesus says, well, do what's in the law of Moses. He lists off the 10 commandments. And funny enough, he actually leaves out the one that he knew the rich young ruler was not walking in. And so he says, you know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't, uh, and then he leaves out, don't covet, and put no other gods before me. So he actually leaves out those two, right? Keep the Sabbath, and the rich young ruler says, well, you know, Lord, I've done all these things from my youth. In other words, he affirms, hey, I'm a good person, right? I've done all those things from the time I was a little bitty kid. And Jesus says, all right, one thing you lack. And it says that Jesus looked at him with compassion when he said this. He loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell all that you have, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Remember, Jesus said, if you're going to follow him, you have to deny yourself. And that commandment he left out was don't covet and don't put any other God before me. And the rich young ruler was coveting material goods and making that God to him. So when Jesus tells him to sell all that he has, says that he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions and did not follow Jesus. Now, the reason why he became sorrowful was because he did not want to give up what he really did love and what he idolized, which was money. And so people do the same thing, regardless of whether it's money or not, they list off to God all the things that they've done right, but they still have this one thing in the dark corner of their life. That's like, but I still want to keep this. I still want to keep this pleasure. I still want to keep this sin. I want to keep this person, this habit, whatever. And they hide that from God. And they think all the good works that they've done, just like the rich 
young ruler justifies them remaining in the sin that they know is in their life. But to Jesus, following him not only means pursuing to do righteousness, righteousness, it also means fleeing from what is evil. So in other words, you can't pursue to do good if you're not turning away from sin at the same time. So that's why repentance has to come first in the preaching of the gospel. In other words, you have to set the expectation for a person that turning away from sin and pursuing righteousness is part of the turning to God. If you try to follow Jesus, but you're letting something remain in your life that you think your good works will justify, then you're not in repentance, nor are you following Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean you're going to do it perfectly immediately, but what it does mean is that a person will be able to say when they believe in Jesus that they are intending not only to set the direction of their life on pursuing Christ, but also to be turning away from sin, which is what repentance means, turning around, going the other direction in their life so that they're not leaving, like in Luke's example, this belief that they're saved when they're still justifying sin. And so it's, it's really important that you know how to communicate to a person who's self-righteous that they have to put that behind them. So with this particular woman, I basically explained this to her and said, hey, like, the Bible says you can't trust in your good works. And I quoted to her Galatians 5, which says that if you attempt to be justified by your works, that you're estranged from Christ and you've fallen from grace, is what Galatians 5 said. So I said, you can't do that. You have to choose to turn away from sin, repent from sin, and pursue what is good. And she hadn't done both. She had just done one which is try to pursue righteousness, but still justify sin in her life and thought that her works were what saved her. And so I just briefly explained that. And, and then I went on my way and I just trusted that God planted a good seed there. But this is something that you guys just need to understand. So that's on those first two bullet points, deny yourself. You got to let go of the old and then deny yourself. Righteousness is also part of it. You can't trust in your works. And so the first passage that's listed there, Luke 18, verses 10 through 14, is a really good uh, passage to read. That's an example of a parable where Jesus talks about two men that go and pray before God. One person's a Pharisee, one person's a sinner. And the Pharisee prays and thanks God that he's better than all other men. And then the sinner prays and says, God, just have mercy on me, and then admits to being a sinner. And it says that that sinner walked away justified, but the Pharisee walked away condemned. And that's the difference between somebody who trusts in their works and then somebody who trusts in the mercy of God and chooses to repent and turn away from sin. And so it's just a a good parable to read um, on that note. So before I continue here, any questions or comments about that? Back here. How do you deny yourself? Okay. So great question. If If you look again at Matthew 16, verse 24, he explains it. Let him deny himself. Then he says, take up his cross and follow me. So we'll address deny and then take up your cross because that's connected to it. Deny, if you look up the Greek word, which I will do right now just to refresh our memory here. Matthew 16. Means to deny utterly, i.e., to disown. So it's basically not only denying association with, but it's a complete renunciation and abandonment of yourself. Now that is kind of a hard thing to hear because, well, number one, how do you actually do that? Which brings up Morgan's question. So how do you actually disown yourself? Right. So 
Jesus doesn't state, at least in a verse like this, defining specifically exactly what he, what he means. But if you look at everywhere else where he talks about following him, he infers what denying yourself means. Or what, I guess by definition, what disowning yourself means. So if you look at a number of different uh, teachings that Jesus gave, the rich young ruler is one example. He had to deny his dependence and attachment or covetousness, really, of material possessions and riches. Uh, there's a passage in Mark where Jesus said, make sure you're not weighed down by the cares of this world and weighed down by riches and carousing and drunkenness. So denying the lusts of the flesh that would otherwise keep you distracted from Christ. That's also part of disowning yourself. He also said later in this verse in Ma Matthew 16 that you, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for, for my sake, you'll find it. So losing your life is part of it. Losing your life basically means instead of serving your own wishes and, and ambitions, you serve his instead. So if you try to make a life for yourself that you think is what you should have, and that's what you pursue, and then try to incorporate Christ into that, God just turns into a means to your end when that's not supposed to be what relationship with God means. He's saying, put aside those ambitions, prioritize his kingdom. Like, for example, Matthew says, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. So don't make your goal the food, the clothing, the riches, the wealth, all that. He's saying, put that aside, pursue me and I'll add to you what you need to be provided for, right? And so those are just a number of different examples. He's essentially saying you have to sacrifice anything that you, without God, would make or want for yourself. That's essentially what it means. Now, and this, if you boil it down, this is pretty much in every area of, area of life, you're going to see things that you're going to need to sacrifice. So one of the biggest culprits, and I learned this coming out of high school, where you see this all over the place. When you are about to finish high school, the first thing that a lot of young people think about is where am I going to go to college and what's going to be my career and how am I going to make money and how am I going to get it big and how am I going to be successful and how am I going to prosper? And those are the first questions that usually the high school students are asking themselves. And Actually, I would say all people ask themselves similar questions in terms of what am I going to do? And it's usually motivated by some kind of selfish ambition. What's in it for me? That's typically the motivation. Instead of asking, what's my relationship with God like? Am I seeking first his kingdom? Am I right with God? Am I following Jesus? That should be the first question that's asked. But in order to follow Jesus, you have to let go of that ambition, which means instead of prioritizing what is in it for you, you prioritize what God wants. If you put first what God wants, then he adds to your life what you need to be provided for in the pursuit of him, which includes, yes, a job or a career, a way to make money, a way to provide for your family. But it's not about your success. It's about the prosperity of his kingdom. And so that has to be number one. And so anytime that you can identify something in life that you are pursuing that is about you, you have to deny that. And God can add it back into your life when he knows you can have a healthy relationship with it. Like with Jacob, for example, he had to let go of drumming, essentially, so that it wouldn't be an idol anymore. And now it can be back in his life and it won't be an idol. But for the time being, he had to let it go. And so all of us have things like that that we could think of, I'm sure, that we would have to let go that are part of, that's part of denying ourselves. Yes, could we get the microphone, RJ, over here to Eon?
Thank you for your patience. Just give it one moment. Okay, so this includes like your lifelong dreams too, right? Like if you really, really want to, this is not related to me at all whatsoever, I swear, but like I say, for example, you want to be like a graphic novelist or something. Sure. And like, um, so does that mean that I have to like get rid of my dream altogether just because it doesn't follow the will of Christ? Sure. Great question. So it's a great example too. So it's, it's a pretty, pretty simple explanation. If you put God's kingdom first, then something like a graphic novelist, for example, if your mindset was right, you would look at that and go, okay, this is an opportunity to glorify God through being a graphic novelist. And what that looks like really is about who you would meet, whether it's coworkers or employees, employers, anybody you would make a connection with, relationships that would begin as a result of pursuing that. But really what it's about is the attitude that I'm doing this for God's glory, right? But if a person says, I want to be a graphic novelist and it's about your dream or it's about my dream and you think that relationship with God is about him blessing what you want to do for your sake, then that would be making your dream your God. So the difference is about your attitude in it. If you're doing something to meet people for his kingdom, then it's good. But if you're doing something solely for your dream, that's when it's empty. And that's when it's trying to save your life, in which case you'll lose it. Does that make sense? The difference in attitude? Okay. Any more questions or comments about any of this before we move on? Yes. Uh, I was just, uh, you think of Paul when he says, uh, for it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Mm-hmm. By denying ourselves, he's, he's fully serving God. Um, but also, um, what was the other verse I was just thinking of? Um, uh, you know, basically doing all to the glory of God in 1 Corinthians 10. I don't know what the verse is because they gave me a whole bunch of verses with it. <laughs> it's in there also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. I think, um, too, having that a willing attitude to lay down anything. Because <laughs> the Holy Spirit talks to us all the time. And he tells us what we need to lay down. He does it all the time. And, I, and this is dating myself. I can remember getting saved, and and I felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me I had to give up my albums. And I'm like, I'm not giving up my, <laughs> I'm not giving up my records. And it it took a while for me to finally gather up all my albums and throw them in the garbage. And you know, you think, well, what's the big deal? It's just music, because whatever you keep in front of your eyes and in your ears, that is what you're becoming. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. You got to be willing to lay down anything, anything and everything. And it's about the attitude, like I said, more than it is about the physical action, but there's going to be certain things that God will have you do. So you can expect that as well. But I mean, think of Abraham, the thing he loved more than anything in the world, as far as an earthly possession was his son, Isaac, his only son. And God told him to sacrifice his only son. Why? 
because that was the thing that would become more important to him than God. So he had to let it go. But Abraham believed that if he had to kill Isaac, that God would raise him from the dead to fulfill his promise. And you can apply that to your life and just saying, hey, if I have to kill something, which is just a way of saying, remove it from your life entirely. I'm not talking about people. God's not going to ask you to kill anyone. I can guarantee it. But using that as a illustration to kill something in your life, if God asks you to do that, you can trust that if it's important for your life, he'll resurrect it and bring it back to you. If God knows it's needed for your calling, he will bring it back. If it's not needed, letting it go is about letting go of something that is only going to weigh you down anyway. Yes. Is this a quick comment or would you like the microphone? Genesis 21 verse 12 when it says towards the end and it says that um, whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice for in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Is this I know it's not kind of pertaining to that, but I I don't really understand what that means because it correlates to Romans nine. And he said. So what's your question? What does that necessarily mean? In Isaac, your seed shall be called. Mm hmm. He's basically telling Abraham that Isaac is going to be the one through whom he fulfills his promise to make his descendants like the stars of the sky in multitude. So Abraham knows that and he's like, all right, if Isaac's the guy, then if I kill him, God must be raising him from the dead afterwards. So that was his drive to obey God because he knew, hey, God's going to fulfill his promise by whatever means necessary. So it wasn't a concern to him if Isaac were to die because he knew God would bring him back. So that's how this applies to this situation. But does that answer the question? Okay, so let's move on here to the next, next part. So I'm just going to briefly address the second section that talks about uh, belief in Jesus Christ. I'm not going to get into this in detail, but these are just all things about Jesus that the Bible says we have to believe in order to be saved. So a lot of people don't think about this, but the Bible actually tells us we have to believe that Jesus came in the flesh, that he was a human, and we have to believe that he was God in order to have salvation. Because if Jesus wasn't human, then his sacrifice wasn't sufficient to redeem humans. And if he wasn't God, then he was not perfect, in which case his sacrifice wouldn't be perfect. So that's just a really short overview of that. Got to believe in his crucifixion and burial because that's how we die with Christ. We have to believe in his physical resurrection and return. I went over that a little bit last week. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So necessary to believe that. Then there's to the be baptized repentance and belief must come before baptism. So if you're going to baptize somebody, they got to have made that decision to turn away from what is evil to what is good, to believe in Jesus and all that he is, and then be baptized. So that means just because you say the name of Jesus, that isn't enough. They have to know who Jesus is, right? So that's why explaining Christ and him crucified, who Jesus was, he was a man. He was also God in the flesh. He was crucified, was buried. He rose again, and he's returning for you. That needs to be explained to a person. So if you're going to say, I'm going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're preaching good news about Christ. So a person needs to know about Christ in order to believe in the right one. So if you're going to baptize somebody, make sure they know who Jesus is first and make sure that they've repented. So that's what that part is about. Then we get into the third section, which is to follow Jesus, which is what I said we'd get into here. So what does it actually mean to follow him? So to talk about that, we're going to go to Luke chapter 9, 
verse 57. So go to Luke chapter 9, verse 57. That's where we'll start. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture about following Jesus. It's hard truth, but it's powerful. And remember that Jesus said in order to desire to come after him, we must follow him. So what we're about to read in Luke 9 is a necessity. It's not optional. And people need to know that this is a necessity. So Luke 9 verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed down the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, if you interpret this or read this literally, you're going to misunderstand what it's saying because Jesus did have places to sleep some of the time. <laughs> if we're talking about literally speaking, he did stay in certain people's homes from time to time. Yes, there were times when he would sleep in the, in the hole of a ship, depending on his travels and things like that. So when he's saying the son of man has nowhere to lay his head, he's not saying he can't sleep anywhere because he obviously did sleep in different places. What he's talking about is more spiritual than it is physical. Now we're told in several different places, one in particular is 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, which says as sojourners and pilgrims, Peter says, I beg you actually, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. And when he calls you a sojourner and pilgrim, that basically means somebody who's traveling through a land, not settling in that land. So for us to be identified as a sojourner or a pilgrim means this world is actually a world we're passing through. So if we attach to anything of here, then we'll perish with the world. And that's why the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, that if you love what is in the world, then the world, which is perishing, will cause you to perish as well. James 4 says, whoever desires to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So if you have any dependent attachment to this world and anything in it, this includes human relationships. And that's what you attach your security to. When that world perishes, you perish with it. Um, so the specific, I'll just read that verse in 1 John to you guys, just so that you guys can write down the exact reference. Um, first John two, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So if you do do the will of God, you abide forever. But if you love the world, you're not of the father and therefore the lust of the world that is in your life will pass away and you with it. That's 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. Philippians 3, 20 says that our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you're a citizen of heaven. That's where your home is, the kingdom of God. This world is not. Not talking about the physical planet. I'm talking about the, the, the society of the world, the culture of the world, the people of the world are not your home. So when Jesus is saying, hey, animals have a home and I don't, he's talking about the world. 
that if you're going to follow Jesus, you can't follow him and be attached to the world at the same time. You're supposed to be a sojourner. You're passing through. So that means, therefore, if it's a travel that you're going through, it's about making other people travelers with you. So you're actually trying to pull out of the world as many people as you can. That's actually the point of being alive in this world is to get as many people out of it as you can. So that's why Jesus is saying, I have nowhere to lay my head. That's the point. So when somebody says they want to follow him, he says, hey, make sure that you are not making anything of this world your settlement, your resting place, or your home, because you're a citizen of heaven if you're going to follow me. So therefore, this is about passing through, not settling here. Amen? Okay, so that's number one. There's, there's three of them here, so that's, that's the first point. Second point, verse 59 of Luke 9. Luke 9, verse 59. Then he said to another, follow me. Notice he doesn't say believe in me. He says, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. So there's two points to this. First is what does it mean when the guy says, let me go and bury my father. And then Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. So this is not him telling him that he is not allowed to grieve the death of his father. Because the Bible says, mourn with those who mourn. There is a purpose in the will of God for that those who are lost to mourn them in a certain way. So he's not, he's not despising mourning or grieving. What he's talking about is something that was specifically cultural. So back then, it was especially the responsibility of the firstborn son when your father was sick and close to death, or if he had already died, you had a cultural and traditional responsibility to basically lead the funeral processions, if you will. And that was the responsibility of the firstborn son. So when this guy says, let me first go and bury my father, he's saying, hey, I have a cultural responsibility here. I have an obligation to fulfill in regarding the, the death and funeral of my dad. So I'd like to go finish that first before I follow you. And so Jesus, when he says, let the dead bury their own dead, he's saying, hey, following me is more important than your cultural obligations. You got to let those go. He's not saying despise your dad. He's saying, if somebody is dead and you have to abandon the cultural obligation to lead that funeral in order to follow me for any reason, then it's something you got to be willing to do and trust that the dead will handle themselves just fine. That's what he's trying to say. Now, especially if we're talking about people who are not believers and they die and we have some kind of attachment to them and we know they're not, they're not going to heaven. They're not going to be with the Lord. We're not, they're gone, very gone. So if we're still attached to them, then it's just going to weigh us down. It accomplishes nothing for the kingdom. So Jesus is saying, hey, you got to let go of attachment to that person, number one. Number two, you got to make sure that you're not prioritizing your cultural or familial obligations before the kingdom of God. And so sometimes when it comes to following Jesus, you're going to have to let go of certain obligations. One example of this is that Jesus was approached when he was in a crowd of his disciples by somebody who said, hey, your, your mother and your brothers wish to see you. They want to talk to you. And he's in the middle of doing ministry, right? 
And we would think because of culture, family comes first, family comes first, family comes first, right? We hear that all the time. And Jesus's family, which supposedly come first, approach him and say, Hey, Jesus, like we want to talk to you. And they think we're your family here. Shouldn't we get your attention? And Jesus is in the middle of serving other people. And he says, here are my mother and my sister and my brothers pointing at the people around him. And he says, it's those who do or who hear the word of God and keep it. Those who do the will of the father. He said, that's my family. So God actually does believe in family coming first, but he's talking about the family of God. God doesn't call your mother, your sister, your brothers the same way that we do. We typically think of our biological family. But Jesus is saying, hey, his kingdom has to come first. Now, this still, of course, means, yes, honor your father and mother. Yes, you have siblings for a purpose. Yes, you should have an influence on your family. But if your family demands something that is against the will of God for your life, then we have to put God's kingdom first, and we have to be willing to deny that obligation. So that's what Jesus is trying to say. When he's saying, or when the man says, let me first go and bury my father, and Jesus tells him to let the dead bury their own dead, he's saying, hey, you're going to have to let that go. It's a certain obligation that will hinder him in following Christ and his kingdom. So that's what that is about. Do we have any questions about that? Uh, about the mother and brothers that wanted to see him. Um, let me look that up real quick. I'm not exactly sure. Here are my mother and my sister and my brothers. That is Matthew 12 verses 48 and 49. Yeah. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Luke 12, 48 and 49. Or I'm sorry, Matthew. I said that wrong. I said Luke. Matthew 12, verses 48 and 49. My apologies. Matthew 12, 48 and 49. Okay. Then verse 61 of Luke, (laughs) of Luke chapter nine, Luke chapter nine, verse 61. Another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So that's a hard statement that he makes. Essentially, here's what he means. This man going back and bidding farewell to his family back then, culturally speaking, was could be a long process. Like to give you a cultural example that's in scripture, when uh, Isaac or when Abraham sent a servant to his family in another country to find a wife for his son, Isaac, when the servant shows up and wants to leave with Rebecca to bring her back to Abraham's family and to Isaac, they keep saying, Hey, no, like we should stay here a little while. You should eat and drink with us. Like take a week, like just stay here for a while. It was very common in that culture that a a goodbye was very, very long. (laughs) And so more than Minnesota goodbyes, I know you guys are what I'm talking about where it's Everybody feels obligated. You got to say bye to people. Back then it was even worse. Like a goodbye could be three, four or five days long. Right. And so when the guy says, let me go and bid farewell to my family, this could be weeks. Okay. 
And so he's based, and he knows this. So he's basically saying, I, man, I just got to please my family. Right? And so this doesn't just have to do with family. When Jesus is saying, hey, if you're looking back, you're not fit for the kingdom. He's saying, if when you're following Jesus, you always got to turn around and make sure people are happy with what you're doing. It's not going to work out. I would also say that if you're going to plow a straight furrow, you can't do it looking back. Right. Your eyes have to be focused mm-hmm. on wherever you're not. Nowadays, they use lasers, you know, to plow a field straight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, that's why he uses the analogy of plowing. You can just probably, sure, hand it back to Dolores. I guess that's okay. Um, yeah, because he uses the analogy of plowing, we know that just like Kevin is saying, it's got to be a straight line. You got to be focused on what's ahead of you. If you're always looking back, making sure you're pleasing people, making sure that people are happy with what you're doing, and people are okay with what you're doing, you're not going to be plowing in a straight line, in which case you're not fit for the kingdom, which actually means you're actually not in the condition to enter the kingdom of God if you're always looking back. It's an impossibility. So if you're going to follow Jesus, it's got to be about setting your eyes on him and doing what he says to do and not caring about what other people might think about you. Because if you do care about what other people think about you, you're always going to be try to, you're always going to try to please them. In which case, you won't be fit for the kingdom. An example of this is in Galatians chapter one verse ten, which I'd encourage you guys to write down if you're taking notes. I won't turn there, but Galatians one verse ten, Paul says, "If I seek to please men, I am no longer a servant of God." That's what Galatians one verse ten says. So if, if I seek to please men, I am no longer a servant of God. So it's one or the other. It's either about pleasing people or it's about pleasing God. You can't do both. There is another example where in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, you are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. So when he says that, he's talking about if God purchased you and that makes you his belonging, that you belong to him, then you can't become a slave of men or you shouldn't, which basically means willingly yielding yourself to people and letting their thoughts and feelings control what you will say and do. Always being what you do and how you are dictated and determined and determined by what people's opinions and imaginations are, what they think. Don't become a slave of men. That's what he's talking about. So if you're going to follow him, your eyes got to stay ahead. That's what that's trying to say. So if you bring this all into summary, we've got don't set your security and comfort in anything of this world because it's going to pass away. That's the first point. Second thing, you're going to have to, at times, let go of certain cultural obligations or traditions in order to follow Jesus, and don't worry about that. Third thing, you can't live to please people and always be one to look back and bid them farewell, which is try to make them happy with what you're doing. It's just not going to work. Put those three things together. If those three things are in a person's life or they're growing in a person's life, they will be able to follow Jesus. So if you lead somebody to Christ and you go through, just like is on this handout, you've talked about repentance. The intention is set for them to turn from sin and pursue righteousness. They believe, well, they understand who Jesus is and they believe in him and they're going to be baptized. So then you get into actually following and obeying Christ. They have to know. These are the things you got to let go of. If you're living for people, for culture, for tradition, you're not going to be able to follow him. And if you're looking to feel at home in this world, then it's just not going to work. 
you can, of course, still have joy. I mean, we should have, the Bible says, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Exceeding joy we're supposed to have. So choosing this road is actually supposed to be the most joyous thing you could ever do. And I can testify, this does add joy to your life. But you can't believe that this world is your home. We're supposed to be like fish out of water. That's the whole point. We're aliens, the Bible says. Special people, right? Those people are special over there, right? Like that, that's what the Bible says the world is going to see us as, aliens. Peculiar people, right, exactly. Those people are weird. Like, that's kind of the whole point. So people have, they got to know that, and that's the taking up the cross part, or at least that's part of the taking up the cross piece, which I said I would get into, and I'll address that briefly now, that taking up the cross... Uh, if you look at Hebrews 12, Jesus said he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. That's Hebrews 12, like verses 2 and 3 talks about that. And when it says despising the shame, it connects that phrase with the cross. That's revealing something about Roman crucifixion, which they only did for the worst or most odious of criminals. So if you were just a normal bad guy, if you will. They would just hang you on a cross and just leave you there and then that would be it. If you were really shameful of a criminal and everyone despised you, they would have you carry your cross on your shoulders just like Jesus did to the site of your crucifixion and they would tell the whole town that their job would be to spit on you, throw food at you, insult you, revile you while you're on the way to the site of your crucifixion. So that was the point of carrying the cross. Yes, it made it physically harder, but it was about the emotional abuse as well. People were to mock you on your way. (laughs) Right. Sure. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, the scourging too. Yeah, that wasn't normal for crucifixion victims. Basically, what Jesus went through was what the worst of criminals would go through. Like I said, if you're just a normal criminal, they would just crucify you and that would be it. For Jesus, they, they put him through the, the worst that they could throw at him, right? And so when Jesus says, take up the cross, they didn't quite know what that meant yet because Jesus hadn't himself done it. So he hasn't even been crucified yet. And, and he's telling them, you got to take up your cross. And they're like, what does that mean? So then his disciples watch him actually take up his cross. And they're like, that's what he was talking about. You know, like, this is pretty intense, right? <laughs> right? So when he's saying, you got to take up your cross to follow him, he's saying you have to be willing to despise the shame. Now, that phrase in Greek means to overlook the mockery, the shame, the insult that you will have to endure as a follower of Jesus and not let it get to you. That's the point. So you have to be willing to carry this burden of persecution through your pilgrimage in this world as you pursue pursue God, regardless of how the world responds to you. However they persecute you, bear it. And let it be a reason to rejoice. That's what taking up the cross means. And as the world gets darker, persecution will increase and it will get worse. It's just inevitability. It's always been that way throughout history. And so we can expect that we will escape that. So that means if we're going to be explaining this to people, you got to tell them, hey, persecution is just part of the deal. People are, there's going to be people who don't like what you're doing. There's going to be people who will mock you for it. And you got to be willing to endure that. It's part of the deal. And typically, we wouldn't think that you would want to talk to a person about that from the first moment you introduce Christ to them. Typically, we would think we want to go over all the flowery parts first, right? 
because we want them to like us and we want them to like the message. And Jesus just right off the bat, said, hey, if anyone desires to come after me, they haven't even made a decision yet. They just want to. They have interest in the gospel. And he's saying they got to take up the cross. It's kind of intense. I mean, with Paul, for example, when, or when he was first, when he was Saul, when he first was called, the very first thing that Jesus says to him after he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? He says, I will show you how many things you must suffer for my namesake. One of the first things Jesus says to Saul when he first gets saved is, I'm going to show you how many things you're going to suffer. <laughs> right. So now this doesn't mean you got to tell people that exactly. Like God's going to show you how many things you're going to suffer. Like that's, that was, that specific phrase was unique to Saul. But the, the heart of the matter is that persecution is an inevitability for all those who will desire to live godly is what 2 Timothy 3 says, verse 12. If you're going to follow Jesus, there's going to be persecution. And we're told rejoice when that happens. So a really good verse to consider on that note is in, is in Luke. Chapter 6, verse 26, or I'm sorry, actually verse 22, and then we'll skip to verse 26. So Luke chapter 6, verse 22, it's one of my favorites. I always say that. <laughs> All of it's one of my favorites. Verse 22, blessed are you when men hate you. Amen. <laughs> and when they exclude you, in other words, when you get picked last for the dodgeball game, and revile you, which basically means extreme insult, and cast out your name as evil. They make you an enemy, they hate you, they exclude you, and they revile you. Blessed are you when that happens to you. He says, for the son of man's sake, verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner, their fathers did to the prophets. So you are in the right camp if you're persecuted. Because the same thing happened to the prophets before you. The people who wrote the Bible that you are reading went through all the same stuff. And they rejoiced over it. This has got to be, this is mainly speaking from the flesh, but this has got to be one of the hardest things as far as the flesh is concerned to do because it goes completely against your human nature. Completely. So if you're going to deny yourself, this is one step. To make a decision to rejoice when you're persecuted like this. It's a discipline. Before it ever becomes natural to you, it'll start as a discipline. And that's why it's got to be a choice to begin with. So then if you skip to verse 26, he says, woe to you. Well, let's actually start in verse 24. I want to get the context. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. In other words, that's all you're going to get. What money gives you is all you're getting. Verse 25, woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. In other words, if you think you're full now, in other words, if you're satisfied with the life that you have now, that's all you're getting. 
you're going to hunger later and you won't have the answer because you weren't willing to be hungry earlier, which is hungry for Christ. Woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep. If you're laughing about it now, joking about it now, when the day of judgment comes, you're going to be mourning and weeping and it'll be too late. Verse 26. Here's another woe. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. When all men speak well of you, sure sign of being a false prophet. You can see this also. I'm not going to get into this in extreme detail, but because there's a lot of people that argue over who is a false teacher and who's not. And, you know, don't get into that too much. But Jesus does tell us, and there's other places in the Bible that allude to it, that if we're going to make a judgment about who we should be listening to and who we shouldn't in terms of preachers and ministers is whether everyone speaks well of them or not. And this is talking about the world. So the people that are not following Jesus, if the public is happy with something that's being preached, then it's falsity. If there's persecution to something that's being preached, that's coming from the world, then it's a sign of it being truth. And so an example would be in churches and communities where there's a huge emphasis on, I would say, affirming and approving the LGBTQ message, right? So the world likes what is being taught there. That would be an example of all men speaking well of something, in which case it makes it false. So that's just one thing to keep in mind. Again, I just, as a warning, don't, don't entertain the speaking evil of churches and ministers and all that stuff because that's just not going to go anywhere good. It just creates argument. But just as a thing to keep in mind, it's just I wanted to bring that up. Okay. So to finish this out, uh, on the bottom here, the benefits and then the consequences for choosing or rejecting this way, something you guys can look into on your own. It's just important to be able to explain to someone when you present the gospel. You don't have to necessarily do it at the end. This, this last part doesn't mean that's the last thing you say. It's, you don't have to follow this rote. But it basically means that when you're explaining the gospel, you should be able to say, hey, here's the benefits of this. Like This is the reward of eternal life or the reward of following Jesus. And then there's the consequences of rejecting it, but you've got to be frank about all of it. So the slavery to sin and death and the eternal tribulation, anguish, destruction, fire, and the wrath of God is all all part of it, all things that Jesus preached. So if we're going to preach a well-rounded gospel, we got to say what Jesus said. And so that's why that's there. So if you go through this with a person, now these are not tracks. So don't just go throwing these out in Nicollet Mall, okay? Because that's not what these are for. You can use this either as a study guide for yourself or as a framework for helping you share the gospel with a person, but this isn't designed to replace you. So this is not about you giving it away to somebody and letting them figure it out. You should use this so that you can be there for someone when they need to hear the gospel. That's what this is about. But I wouldn't stand in front of a person and, you know, read off of this. (laughs) Don't do that either. So that's why this is important for you guys to just look into for yourselves and study it out a little bit. And when you think about it, that's what the darker side is for. It's pretty simple. Repent and turn to God, believe and be baptized, follow and obey Christ. That's the message of the kingdom. That's the good news of the kingdom. Do this and you will live. That's what Jesus said, you know. So, yes. Not that you need it or are looking for it, but 
I know there probably had to be a lot of work put into this with all the scripture. So thanks. This is organized and helps a lot. Appreciate it. Yeah. It was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a night at, I started at about 8.30 and was up till 2.30 in the morning. Um, I wanted to get it done in one night. So I was like, I'll, I'll just, I'll just hammer it out. So, yeah. I just wanted to, I was thinking the same thing. I just want to thank you too. Um, how the Holy Spirit guided you in all this, because it really does clarify things for me, questions I've Good. had over the years. Mm-hmm. And it just gives a really great framework mm-hmm. to go out and mm-hmm. speak the truth. So mm-hmm. thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, it is so helpful. I mean, even for me personally, just writing this out was so helpful for me because it was the next day I was able to use it. The next day. I didn't have it with me, but I just was like, oh, hey, here's an opportunity. And I went through it. And it really, really helped a person understand. It helped me understand. So it's just, um, like Deborah was saying, it's a great resource just to be able to explain this to a person. Um, what I would recommend, practically speaking, is, if, is that if you have one chance of an encounter with a person, so let's say like it's a street evangelism context or I don't even want to use that term. Let's just say you're out and about and you meet somebody that you're most likely never going to see again. I would recommend getting as much of this in as you can if they will listen. So it'll be a somewhat of a you know comprehensive conversation. So I mean you can go through at least if you're talking about the darker side, you can get through that in a couple minutes easy. But if somebody's going to listen to you for 5, 10, 15 minutes, try to go through all of this with them in as concise of a way as you can. Just so that they get a well-rounded presentation of it. If you meet somebody and This is what I will typically do. This is just a great practical recommendation is that if you meet somebody in this kind of context and they are listening to you, I will usually say, hey, would you be willing to talk again sometime? And if they say yes, I exchange contact information with them and I will usually get back to them either over the phone or if they give me an email, I'll send them an email and then I'll connect with them again and then I'll talk about this in more detail. So if somebody's willing to talk with you again, just you go through the same thing, but you just fill in the blanks and add more details. And this has worked really, really well if you want to have just more conversation with people. A lot of times we think of meeting somebody on the street as just like a one-time encounter and that's it. But the goal is discipleship. The goal is not just hit and run evangelism, right? The goal is discipleship. So that means the point of meeting people is to help them walk out a life in Christ, not just hear a message and receive it. And so that's why a continued relationship is really important. And this also is part of your, um, your own acceptance of the gospel because it means you're going to have to put some work into it. You're going to have to invest in a relationship, but it will help you learn. You will learn so much by creating continual conversation with a person about this, and it will really, really help you grow. And that's why if you look back in Luke 9 when he says, um, you know, I will follow you, but let me first... Is it, let me first go and bury my father. Let me just verify that. He says, oh, when he says, let the dead bury their own dead. Uh, after he says, let me first go and bury my father. And then he says, you go and preach the kingdom of God. That's interesting because he tells him to abandon what he was about to do. And then the first thing he tells him is to preach. Now, again, you typically wouldn't think that a person's first step to following Jesus would to be a preacher of the gospel. But that's one of the first things he says. And this is an encouragement to us because it means that, hey, preaching the gospel to others is, again, part of the deal. Learning how to share what we believe with others is part of following Jesus. This also means for a person who's a new believer 
that the work of sharing Christ with others is how we actually fulfill the task to follow Jesus. To give you a, a parable example, and this is what I'll finish with here, is when Jesus talked about the parable of the talents and the parable of the minas. He distributes talents or minas. I'll, I'll use the equal amount of money example. So he delivers, his 10 servants, delivers one mina to each of them. He returns after a long journey to settle accounts and square everything up with his servants. So when he returns, he asks them to tell him what they were able to produce from the initial mina that was given to them at the beginning. And all of them have invested in something. All of them have profit. The last servant didn't do anything with the mina. He just buried it in the ground or folded it up in a napkin, buried it in the ground, then pulled it out of the ground when the Lord returned and then gave him back what was his. And the master called him a wicked and foolish servant and then cast him into outer darkness in Matthew 25. Why is it that somebody named a servant of the Lord was cast into hell when he didn't do anything with what was given to him? What that tells you is that an identifying mark of a person's salvation is they do something with the faith, right? If it's buried and nobody hears of it, nobody sees it, you can't tell they're a Christian, you can't tell they're a follower of Jesus. There's no sign in their life of actually making use of what was given to them. Then Jesus explicitly states they'll be cast into outer darkness. So this doesn't mean, oh, you have to become an evangelist to be saved. That's not the point. The point is that if someone is saved, they will be a preacher. I'm not talking about with the microphone in the pulpit. I'm saying they will want to share what they have with others. And it will look different for everyone. Not everyone's going to be with a microphone but there's going to be opportunity for everyone to just simply share, whether it's with family, with friends, with coworkers, you're just, you're going to talk about it. That's ultimately the point here. And so that's what Jesus meant. If you're not willing to talk about it with others, your faith might not even be real. So that's just something to keep in mind.